Okay, good. Um, Diana sent this to me this week, and so I just want to read it to you. It says, church is hard. Church is hard for the person walking through the doors afraid of judgment. Church is hard for the pastor's family under the microscope of an entire body. Church is hard for the prodigal soul returning home broken and battered by the world. Church is hard for the girl who looks like she has it all together but doesn't. Church is hard for the couple who fought the entire ride to service. Aren't you glad that never happened to you? It doesn't happen to us anymore because we take separate cars. <laughs> Just to fill you in. See, God does have wisdom, you know. Church is hard for the single mom surrounded by couples holding hands in seemingly perfect families. Church is hard for the widow and the widower with no invitation to lunch after service. Church is hard for the deacon with an estranged child. Church is hard for the person singing worship songs overwhelmed by the weight of the lyrics. Church is hard for the man insecure in his role as a leader. Church is hard for the wife who longs to be led by a righteous man. Church is hard for the nursery volunteer who desperately longs for a baby to love. Church is hard for the single mom and single man praying God brings them a mate. Church is hard for the teenage girl wearing a scarlet letter, ashamed of her mistakes. Church is hard for the sinners. Church is hard for me. It's hard because on the outside, it all looks shiny and perfect. Sunday best in behavior and dressed. However, underneath those layers, you find a body of imperfect people, carnal souls and selfish motives. But here is the beauty of church. Church isn't a building, mentality, or expectation. Church is a body. Church is a group of sinners saved by grace, living in fellowship as saints. Church is a body of believers bound as brothers and sisters by an eternal love. Church is a holy ground where sinners stand as equals before the throne of grace. Church is a refuge for broken hearts, and a training ground for mighty warriors. Church is a converging of confrontation and invitation where sin is confronted and hearts are invited to seek restoration. Church is a lesson in faith and trust. Church is a barrier of burdens and a giver of hope. Church is a family. A family coming together, setting aside differences, forgetting past mistakes, rejoicing in the smallest victories. Church, the body, and the circle of sinners turned saints is where he resides. And if we ask, he is faithful to come. So even on the hard days at church, the days when I'm at odds with a friend, when I fought with my husband because we're late once again, those husbands. When I've learned, when I've walked in bearing burdens heavier than my heart can handle, yet masking the pain with a smile on my face, when I've worn a scarlet letter under the microscope, when I've longed for a baby to hold or fought tears as the lyrics were sung, when I've walked back in afraid and broken after walking away, I'll remember 
He has never failed to meet me there. Amen? All right. And church is a work in progress as well. A work in process. And there is no perfect church. And if there was, when you showed up, it would have changed. So. All right. Uh, Hebrews 6.15 says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. You can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, though. God has some set times for us where we are going to have to wait. And as we wait, God is going to do some shifting in us. He's going to change some things, rearrange some things while we're waiting. And He's going to do that so that we can become more and more like Jesus. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And you know, so there are times that we're going to have to find ourselves in the place of being still, in the place of being quiet, because God wants to remind us that he is God and we're not. Amen. But he also wants to remind us during that time that he will be exalted in the earth. He will be exalted in the nations. Um, and it's in that waiting time when we're still before the Lord that we find out more of who God is, more of his character and his nature. We also find out that we are not God, that uh, all of our wisdom and might isn't enough. It doesn't compare to him. And it's in the quiet place with the Lord when we are still that we are reminded of this truth. And that brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 20. It says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Isn't that awesome? And so if he's in us, we have the power of God and we have the wisdom of God. And here's where he starts talking about you. Verse 25. For, well, not yet, but he, we're getting into it. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your callings, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. <laughs> so we're talking about us today, right? Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose. Everybody say, God chose. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. 
You know, and, and the word this morning was even not to um, despise small beginnings. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to have it all together. He, he chooses the low things and the despised things. And, you know, what I love about this, it gets even worse in our description. Because he says, even the things that are not. And how many of us have thought, I'm just not good enough? Okay, well then, we're all right. He's chosen us. To bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, say because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What a wonderful thing to know this God. What a wonderful opportunity we have to know God, to get to know his ways and his purposes. I am so glad that God is on my side and I'm on his side. And uh, in that, I'm so glad that I don't have to know everything. I don't have to have the answers to everything because he does. All I have to do is trust him. And we've been looking in this part about the fact that all of our thoughts don't come from God. There are thoughts out there that come from other places. And so um, we need to realize that we have to do the adjusting in our thought process, in our thought patterns, if we're going to be successful with God. And this morning we're going to look at that. But we have to understand that we can have thoughts that come from the enemy as well as from God. And the thoughts from the enemy are called lies. And we have to be on guard against them because it is so easy for us to believe the lies of the enemy and to turn away from God and his ways and his plans and his purposes for our lives. We touched a little bit on this last week out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. And they're small, but it says, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Everybody say, test everything. Hold fast to what is good. So not only is not every thought we have necessarily from God, but neither are some of the things that have been spoken. And it's amazing to me how many people, how many Christians have been trapped by what someone has said to them or about them. Because when we hear those words, we have thoughts with them. And they can become strongholds in our lives. And so we have to be on guard against them. Those thoughts, even though they were spoken, doesn't mean that it was spoken by God. And so we have to guard ourselves with that. Christians have let the enemy uh, come in and, and establish those strongholds. And, and it hinders their walk. It hinders their influence. And so we have to be on guard about that. We have to be on watch about that. And what I'm so thankful for is the fact that God has given us the remedy for all of this as well. And we don't have to believe every thought. We don't have to believe everything that is spoken to us or against us. Last week, we were looking at how John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And when he came up out of the water, the dove came on him and or the Holy Spirit like a dove. But the words from heaven said, this is my beloved son with him. I am well pleased. 
And then we looked at how right after that, then the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And it says that he led him in there to be tempted. Mm -mm. So we always think that our difficulties are from the enemy, but maybe it's God using that to get to us. Now, in this case, when it says that the Holy Spirit led him out to be tempted, he had to be tempted in his identity because heaven had just spoken, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so the enemy is going to challenge that. Just like the enemy challenges our identity, Jesus had to be challenged with his identity as well. And we are going to be tempted to turn away from the person that God has made us to be forfeiting the plans that God has for us. And so we need to know who we are more and more, especially in this day and age, because the world has gone crazy trying to reestablish identities and change identities from what God has. And so we need to make sure that our identity is defined by God and it's not changed according to our feelings or what the world says about us. Last week we looked at uh, 2 Corinthians 10 and it talked about how that we have been given divine power to demolish, to pull down strongholds, to destroy strongholds, arguments, every lofty opinion or fantasy raised up against the knowledge of God in our lives. We have the ability, but if we don't use it, if we don't use that divine power, then we're going to stay stuck in those things. And so it's our responsibility to use the weaponry against the lies and the attacks of the enemy. It is our responsibility to test everything. Not every thought we have is from God. And we must judge every thought according to the word of God, not our own made up truth that makes us feel better. And I just want to remind you about this. Jesus, when he answered the enemy about his identity, he answered with the word of God. And that's why it's so important for us to answer with the word of God. So that means we have to know the word of God. But we also have to know the intent of the word of God, because the enemy came back on the third one and challenged him with the word of God, but he didn't have the right context for the word of God. So we have to know the word of God. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to be working in us so that we can stand against this. Now, your identity doesn't change in a moment. If it changes, it changes over a period of time. This morning, I want to look at how the enemy gets us to sin, but in particular, get us to change our identities. Okay? It's the same pattern that he had with Adam. And it's still working today, so he's not going to change his tactics, right? If it's working, it's working. And it, if it's working, it's shame on us. Okay? Because, again, it is our responsibility to use the divine power that God has given us to destroy and demolish and pull down the lies of the enemy in our lives. If you'll turn with me to James chapter 1, please. We don't wake up one morning thinking that we're different. I mean, we do. 
But it's been a process. There has been some things that have happened. And uh, the enemy has planted seeds along our path. And he waits to see which ones take hold. And then he continues to craft his schemes of lies against us. It's, the, it's a process the enemy takes us through to get us to believe the lie of who we are, who we think we are, from the truth of who we really are designed by God. So in James chapter 1, and again, I want you to remember, we have to be the ones vigilant to guard our hearts, to guard our minds, to uh, take responsibility, to test everything. Okay, It's our responsibility. So in James chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when, if I say when, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. If I say his own desire. Then desire when, if I say when, it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully Grown, if I say when, when it is fully grown, gives birth or brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, in this, I want us to understand something here. He starts off by saying, blessed is the man who uh, remains steadfast under trial. Okay. And then he says, For when he has stood the test. Okay. The word trial and test come from the same root word. But also the word trial and test and tempted or temptation that James uses here all come from that same root word. It's important that we understand that because here's the reality. We decide if it's a test or a temptation. The situation is put before us and then we will determine if it's a test or a temptation. If it's a test, you're going to remain steadfast under it. You're going to answer it according to the word of God. You're going to rise above it. You're going to pass the test. But if it's a temptation, you're not going to remain steadfast. You're going to begin to waffle. You're going to begin to become weak need. And then you're going to give into it. And then at that point, it becomes a temptation in your life. And then in the temptation, um, first of all, let me go back to verse 13, because this has to be a foundation for our lives. Because and I hate to tell you this, but unfortunately, it's not for many believers. But let me read 13, because this has to be foundational. Let no one say when he is tempted. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So it's not God doing the tempting, because uh, I'm 
believe it or not, I have had people who engage in sin and then they tell me that God led them to that. And I'm like, no, he did not. It's impossible for him to do that. Just from this word alone, it's impossible. So, verse 14 and 15 describe the process and of how we're tempted, how we fall into temptation. And I want to remind you, at any moment, you can stop this. You can put an end to it. The best thing that you can do is not even go, have to go through this process. But we are all going to go through it. We are all going to be tempted. Okay? And if it's not in your identity, it's going to be in something else. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when, and when is important there, he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And, and what he's saying is, is we start to hear things. We start to uh, hear what is going on in somebody else's life. And so we start thinking about that. We start hanging around that. We're listening to that and we're like, huh, I wonder if that's true for me. Because we're being lured and we're being enticed. And, you know, it may be the fact that we see somebody in sin and yet they're being blessed in the natural. And so we think, well, you know, if they're doing this and they're being blessed, then maybe I can do this and I can be blessed as well. Maybe God isn't against this. And so that's the part that we have to be careful with. And then it says in verse 15, then desire when, and again, it's when it conceives, gives birth to sin. Now, there are pauses in this process that God gives us so that we can break out of it. And here's a pause. He says that when we enter into this, then we give birth to sin. When you're birthed into sin, just think of it in the natural. When a child comes in the natural, when it's birth, then it's small, right? It, it seems okay. And with sin in our life, when it's birth, it's small at first. It seems manageable. It seems like we have a handle on it. It seems as if our thoughts can handle this. And, and so we don't really pay much attention to it, but it keeps hanging around. You know, that baby keeps growing because we keep feeding that thought. Because he says, then desire when it, it, when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown. So there's a when in there, but he says when it is fully grown. So now... It's a major stronghold in our lives. It's fully grown. Why? Because we have given attention to it. We have given purpose to it. We have given thought to it. And so, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so, that's the process that the enemy takes us through. And whether it's he's challenging you on your identity or, or some kind of addiction or some other kind of sin, this is what he uses. He gets us to, it starts in our minds, in our thoughts first. And that's why we, the scripture says that we have to guard our hearts. But 
that, that means we have to guard our minds, what we're looking at, what we're seeing, what we're reading, what we're paying attention to, what we're hearing. Because it doesn't seem that bad at first. You know, I used to, when they had these, the billboard signs, and they would have these beautiful women on there with a little bottle of alcohol. And I don't know, maybe guys thought that the woman came with the bottle. You know, but it doesn't work that way. You can get the bottle, she doesn't come with it, and you're going to have a lot of pain afterwards. And so we can't blame God on this either. And again, I want to challenge you. I've had Christians tell me that God led them to sin. And it's like, no, he didn't. You were lured and enticed by your own desires. And you didn't deal with it then when it was manageable. And you gave birth to sin. And now you have to deal with that sin. And it's, if you don't deal with it right away again, it's going to grow. It's going to come to maturity. And you're going to have a more of a fight on your hands to get rid of it. And then at the end, again, the warning in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers. I mean, if you think you're immune to this, you're not. The enemy did this to Adam. He did it to Jesus. He's doing it to us. And we have to be on guard about that. And so that's why our own desires have to be in check. We have to be in check with the word of God. There's a lot of desires that I have that I don't act on. I don't always like the things in front of me. I don't always like people in front of me either. But I don't act on those desires. You know, when you're young in the ministry, you have to guard yourself against the spirit of slap. Because when you see people, you just want to slap them because they're so silly. They're ridiculous. But you can't do that. But when the word when was in there, I'm telling you, those are pauses that God has given us opportunity to deal with it. And the sooner we deal with it, the better off we're going to be. If you'll turn with me to, well, wait a minute. Let me, let me give you some words as to know if it's fully grown in your life. If it's come to maturity. <clears throat> We don't get the concept of it growing in our lives because when we sin, death doesn't occur right away, normally. There may be some circumstances when it does, but typically it doesn't. But there is a process, there is a time frame from when sin is given birth in our life until we experience death. Okay, And I'm not talking just physical death either. There could be death in relationships. There could be death in a lot of things. Death in your business. You know, whatever. So since death doesn't occur right away, we convince ourselves even more that our sin is okay because it appears as if God is overlooking it. He's remembering that we're dust and that we're here a moment and gone the next and nobody remembers us. 
He, he knows that. And so we start thinking about it and we start thinking, well, you know, and, and you still may be successful in whatever you're doing in your business or whatever it is. But that doesn't mean that God is in this and it doesn't mean that he's for it and he's blessing it. But in our minds, we start to justify our sin and to think that it really isn't sin because after all, don't you know, God loves us. That's when you know, when you say that and you're in sin, that's when you know that sin has given birth to death. Because we sit there and we say, oh, well, God loves me. Yes, he does love us. But that doesn't mean that he accepts us as we are in our sin. And that doesn't mean that he likes the sin in us. And a matter of fact, he doesn't. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 or chapter 5, verse 21, it says this. For our sake. He speaking of God made him speaking of Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And so I want to ask you something. If there is no sin, then Jesus died a horrible death for nothing. And if there is no sin, then God is a liar and he treats his people bad, especially his favorite son. Because it says that he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that we who knew sin could place our faith in him and become the righteousness of God. And yet we have believers who sit there and, and they've given full birth to death and they sit there and they've convinced themselves, well, God loves everybody. When you hear that God loves everybody, and he does love everybody. John 3.16 says that. For God so loved the world. But then they stop. And they don't understand that he gave his son for the world. Why? Because we were birthed in sin. And it's, it's frustrating when we have people in the church who are sitting there talking about how God loves everybody. Thank God that he does, but I thank God that he loves me so much that he sent Jesus so that he could pull me out of the pit of, of darkness and despair and bring me into a life that I could have never gotten on my own without him. I'm off my rage for a moment. Psalm, turn with me to Psalm chapter one. I wanted you to see this because we saw the process in James chapter one. We're going to see the exact same process. In Psalm 1. We're going to have to change things a little bit, but we'll see it here. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says, it starts off, wonderful book. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, everybody say his delight, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And let me just highlight verse 2 first, because when he's talking about this, his delight is in the law, it's in the Lord. It's in, it's in recognizing what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. We remember that, and we keep it forward in our thinking. And then it says, and on his law, he meditates day and night. In other words, that's us. 
knowing the word of God, saturating ourselves with the word of God, training our senses according to the word of God and not giving in, not not uh, having a casual relationship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God. But we're living on purpose. All right, back to verse one. Did you notice the progression? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So I'm going to take the blessed part out and let's look at the unblessed man. What the unblessed man does, okay? Because it's the opposite of what the blessed man does. Everybody following me? Okay, so here's what the unblessed man does, okay? The unblessed man walks in the counsel of the wicked. He stands in the way of sinners and he sits in the seat with scoffers. Did you catch it? Let's look at this. The unblessed man, the not blessed man, walks in the counsel of the wicked. What happens when you're walking in the counsel of the wicked? You're moving. You're walking. You're moving. You're here at one moment, and then the next moment you're gone and you're over here. But what you're doing is you're walking, and it says, um, in the counsel of the wicked. So you've found some wicked people to hang around with. And, and as you're walking, you're kind of listening to them. You're listening to what they're saying. And they're saying things like this. It won't hurt. No one will know. You can handle this. And you hear that as you're walking by. And then it settles down in you. And, but you, you keep walking by, you keep listening. And as you're walking by, you think to yourself, at first, you think, I, I would never do that. You know, because they tell you, it's not going to hurt, you can handle it, no one's going to know. And you, you think at first to yourself, well, I would never do that. But then you keep walking around them and you keep hearing them. And so then it comes to a point where instead of you just walking by, you come to the place where you're standing. And notice the progression now. You're not just walking by the counsel of the wicked, but now you're standing with who? Sinners. You're standing with sinners. What does that mean? That means that you've come, you found a place with them. You're, you're listening to them now. You're hanging around them and you begin to mingle with the sinners and you fail to stand for truth. And you're even challenged on the truth that you know. And maybe there's some other truth out there. That if you just knew this truth, if you just knew that God loved you, you can go ahead and do that sin.
So we're challenged on the Word of God and the truth of God's Word. And then we begin to water it down and we begin to make it as if it's not, uh, it doesn't have the power in our lives that it once had. Because instead of just walking by now, now we're standing with the sinners. And we're hearing them and, and we're not just hearing them, but now we're engaging with them. Because when you're standing with somebody, you're going to find out information about them. You're going to hear about their life. And this is what happens to us. And then the, the last part is we find a seat. Woo. So once we were walking by, then we started standing with sinners. But notice the progression of who we're seated with now. With scoffers. What are scoffers? Those are the ones who deny God who He really is. Those are the ones who deny the power of God in His Word. And they water down God's Word and they change it. And it doesn't have the, the truth associated with it that God intended for it to be. It's the scoffers who challenged Jesus with the Word of God, but they didn't understand the context that God put that Word in. And so we fall for it. And we just read the portions of the Scripture that we like, that, oh God, so loves the world. But then we forget Forget about that he gave his son because of that. See, that's what a scoffer does. And now, instead of just walking by and, and standing, now you're seated with them. That means you're actually here and you're engaging with them. You're having discussion with them. And it's changing how you think, how you see things. And this is how you know when you're seated with the scoffers. Well, who am I to judge? Or you have people at the very beginning of this part, don't judge me. But who am I to judge? After all, God loves everybody. We hear when we're seated. We hear justification of why we're thinking like we are. Because maybe you've been hurt by church. That's why I read that thing at the beginning. If you haven't been hurt by church, you haven't been going to church. Okay? I mean, let's just be honest. There is somebody in the church that is going to... Um, I don't know how to say this politely. Ruffle your feathers. It's going to rub you raw. Rub you wrong. There's going to be something that happens. I don't care how great the church is. I don't care how big it is, how small it is. Somebody is going to bother you at church. And if we don't know how to handle it, and we go away and we start walking with the counsel of the wicked, start standing with the sinners, Pretty soon, we're going to be seated with the scoffers. The scoffers are those who think that those who speak the truth of God's word, who think they know what God says, are elitist and they don't really know anything. Those are who the scoffers are. Their perspective of truth has changed and now their perspective of Christians and Christianity and God 
and the church and the world changes as well. And it's for the wrong. God doesn't love everybody. Or he does love everybody, but he doesn't accept everybody because of our sin. Nobody stands right before him. And that's why he sent Jesus so that we could. And so that even when we receive him, we don't fall back into the crap that he got us out of. That he redeemed us from, that he pulled us out of the pit of. And that's what the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. A God who loves us, gives us the freedom to choose for ourselves. And when we choose wrong, he offers us the ability to choose repentance, to ask for forgiveness and to come back into right standing with him at any time that we ask. We don't have to stay stuck. We can ask him at any time and and he will be right there when we turn to him. And you can turn with me to first Timothy chapter two, first Timothy chapter two. And we're getting ready to receive communion. And communion is all about this. It's all about remembering, remembering that God loves us so much that he died for us and that he paid the debt that we would never be able to pay so that we could live a life, a life of righteousness that he desires for us to live that was impossible for us to live on our own. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want to start in verse 1. And again, remember, Paul is speaking to Timothy, but he's speaking to the church as well. And he's speaking to a a Timothy who's going to be over a church who is facing difficulties, facing uh, potential death at any moment, difficulties from outside. And this is what he says to him, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for everybody. Say everybody. And then he says this in verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then he starts in verse 3, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And you know what? The Bible doesn't say pray for the kings, pray for the leaders who are in agreement with you. He says to pray for them. Doesn't matter who they are. And at this point in Timothy's life and in the life of the church, they weren't all happy with the church. They were coming against the church. They were persecuting the church. And Paul has the audacity to say, but you got to pray for them. You got to lift them up. You got to trust God with them. I don't have to agree with somebody's politics to pray for them. Verse 5. And as we get ready to receive communion, I just want you to know this. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time.
I am so grateful, so thankful for Jesus. He's the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And when we receive communion this morning, may it be that we're reminding ourselves of how Jesus came willingly. He died and was buried willingly. He was resurrected and ascended for our sake because God, our Father, loves us so much. He couldn't stand to see us in this world of sin and did And so he came and did something about it by choosing to send Jesus. And when we place our faith in him, it's amazing. It is totally amazing. So I want to encourage you this morning. Be on your guard. Remember, know the word of God. Make sure you're being saturated with the word of God so that when the enemy comes in and he challenges you and he's tempting you, you know how to stand. Stand against it. Speak against it. When he's luring you and enticing you by your own desires. When the enemy comes and he tries to get us to walk among the counsel of the wicked. Stand with the sinners and sit with the Scoffers, we have to be on guard against that. We have to be. And part of our remedy is to remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ.